Genesis, the 16th chapter. We'll begin there in a moment in Genesis 16. I appreciate Thomas reading that scripture for us. kind of felt bad. I was asked about what scripture that we had to read, and I didn't want him to read the entire account because that might have taken long, and so he got one verse, but I appreciate that and the preparation of our minds for this study. It's a joy to be with everyone this morning. Uh, we have quite a few visitors. I was told that that might have something to do with visiting college kids that are at OU and, and here, and so we welcome you. We're thankful for your presence. I'm sure there are several others that are visiting for other reasons, but voices blending together just makes us uh, all that more uh, joyous and hopeful about heaven as we'll be together for eternity with God in His presence, singing songs of praises to Him. I appreciate Colby's leading of those songs, and he did an excellent job with that, and, and we've been blessed to be here this morning and engage in worship before our God. I hope and pray that this study will be a benefit to you, and I ask that you would follow along in the Scripture with me as we consider the Word of God and seek to make some practical application. I think we're familiar with Genesis 16 as a, an area of Abraham's life and that of, obviously, his wife Sarai as well, and a terrible mistake that they made. So from the get-go, one thing we learn about faith is that it is a thing with highs and lows, and it matters a lot about how we respond when we find ourselves making those bad decisions and find ourselves, as JT talked about in Galatians 6, overtaken in a trespass. How are we going to respond to that? What are we going to do? And, and how are we going to live by faith with the consequences that we have supplied ourselves with in our ill decisions? In Genesis 16, we find a context of 10 years post-promise given in Genesis 12. He makes that note there in the text as well that we'll see in a moment. Ten years after God promised Abram that he would be given a land and a nation and that in him all the families of the earth will be blessed. And I think that, at least speaking for myself, sometimes I take those things um, in a way that is not as deep as I should. And reading the promises and the time frame of the Old Testament and even the New Testament, just how many years we're talking about in between the texts. Chapter 12 to chapter 16 is only a few chapters, but 10 years is significant. God gave him a promise that he'd have a son. And he believed that promise and followed God into this land and began living a nomadic lifestyle. And 10 years later, he has not yet received that fulfillment of a son, and he's wondering, as well as Sarai, what's going to happen. Even in chapter 15, the context is found with our discussion of 16, that he had begun to wonder if he would receive a son and thought the heir of, of mine is going to be of my house, a servant, Eleazar of Damascus, and that was a mistake as well. So God reiterated the promise to him that from his own flesh and from that of Sarah, that he would have a son. He believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. But in their impatience, Abram and Sarah made a terrible mistake. We recently studied Galatians 4 that looked to chapter 21 of Genesis where Hagar and Ishmael, the bondwoman and her son, are cast out. It's used as an allegory by the Spirit to show the relationship between the two covenants and the state of those who are under them. Under the Old Covenant, there is bondage. Under the New Covenant, there is freedom. And he concluded there that we are sons of promise, children of the free woman. And we think about Hagar and Ishmael, and especially Genesis 16, sometimes 
just in a negative light because there are negative things in it that there were mistakes made. Worldly and fleshly wisdom was followed instead of trusting in the promises and wisdom of God. And there's a lot to learn here in this passage. But there's also the preservation of a characteristic of God that Hagar saw as she gave him the name El Roi. And you might be inclined to say Roy as I have in previously preaching on this before. I made the mistake of looking up how that's actually pronounced. So if I flip-flop, that's why. El Roi is the name that she gave God. You are the God who sees. I want us to establish a little bit of the context, though, as we get up to it. As I mentioned in chapter 16 and verse 3, this is ten years after they began to dwell in the land of Canaan when he was given that promise. After, in chapter 15, the promise is reiterated and Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. But as time has elapsed, both of them begin to wonder, how is this going to happen? Because I'm getting old and it hasn't happened yet. And as things are progressing, it doesn't seem like it's going to happen anytime soon. And so in verse 1, Abram's wife had borne him no children and so she had an Egyptian maidservant and said in verse 2 to Abram, See, now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. There's our first mistake. Trusting in your wisdom. Trusting in the flesh. And the irony is to carry out a promise God gave me. And that's just not how it works. We cannot manifest by our own wisdom the reality of God's promises. We simply... Wait on the Lord by faith. Well, there's another problem that we see. Sarai may have made the suggestion, but it said in verse 2, Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. He abdicated his role of headship. And there's a striking parallel between his problem and mistake and that of Adam's. Remember in Genesis 3 and verse 17, God told Adam, you have heeded the voice of your wife. The wife made a mistake, but I want to tell you that God places such an immense amount of responsibility on the husband that that's the focus here. You have heeded your wife. And there's something else that's similar. When Abram was given the promise, it's just that. To Abraham and his seed, the promises were made. Galatians 3 and verse 16. It wasn't that Sarai was ignorant of the promises. She knew of the promises. But who did God give the promises to? He spoke to Abraham. It was similar with Adam in the beginning. It was to Adam that God initially gave the prohibition, the first law. Before Eve was, was in the picture as far as we're reading, God created Adam and gave him this law and then determined it's not good for him to be alone. And then Eve followed. Eve knew the restriction. Adam was the leader, though. And when Eve took the place of Lord, chaos ensued. And so we need to understand that God has given us roles. And part of waiting on the Lord and having faith in Him is submitting to those roles. And part of the role reversal here, as Abram heeded the voice of his wife, is going into the discussion of worldly wisdom. Not simply trusting and waiting on the Lord by heeding his own wisdom. And so she gave a woman to be his wife when he already had a wife. Conforming to the culture and not trusting in the wisdom of the God of God, as Jesus would say in Matthew, the 19th chapter from the beginning, it was not so he gave Adam Eve singular. That's always been the case. And when man thought I could better these circumstances by adding to and giving another wife to my husband, 
chaos ensued. You notice there in verse 4, beginning of chapter 16. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. That's her problem. She had pride. Where did it come from? It came from worldly wisdom that led to this circumstance. Then Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between you and me. So here's the pride of Hagar that could have been avoided if she wasn't put in that situation. Certainly she had blame, but it came from this worldly wisdom. And then here's Sarah who is shifting the blame. She made the suggestion. But then notice a continuation of Abram's mistake in verse 6. She said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And so Sarai dealt harshly with her. Another sin. But here's another abdication of his headship. I don't want anything to do with this. You do it. You, you take care of this. And so there's a multitude of problems here. A multitude of things that we can learn from. But notice in verse 6 who was affected by this. Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar. And so she made a mistake. She was arrogant. She was prideful. This led to Sarah's harsh treatment of her. That was not justified. That was sinful. But then in this oppressive relationship, Hagar decides to abdicate her responsibility. And she flees from the presence of Sarai and Abram. And so the scripture continues with the account in verse 7. We'll read through the end of the text. Now the angel of the Lord found her, Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said to Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man, and his hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roi. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And so on top of all of this, you have a maidservant who is put in an even more difficult position. And certainly she makes mistakes. Certainly she's abdicated her responsibility. You notice, first of all, that when the angel of the Lord appeared to her and asked her where she's going, and she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, she didn't say, oh, man, you, you have it bad. How, how terrible is this situation? And, and poor baby, she said, return to her and submit under her hand. That was the problem, and that's how it would be fixed in part. You return to your responsibility. In chapter 21, Sarah made the decision to send them away, cast out the bondwoman and her son. And Abram was upset about that, and God said, don't you fret, you listen to her. Cast them out, because he's not the son of promise. Here, there was no such request, there was no such words given. She fled responsibility. And the first thing the angel of the Lord said is, go back and submit, fulfill your responsibility. 
But in the midst of that, while she had made mistakes and while she was in need of repentance and correction, there was a difficulty that she was faced with. And the comfort I think that we can bring from this text is that God was not only aware of that, but He wasn't indifferent toward it. It didn't excuse her decisions. It didn't excuse her reverting to her own wisdom in addressing this problem. But certainly he saw her struggle. It said that the Lord had heard her affliction and so named the son Ishmael, which is God hears. El there being God, which is where we get this idea of El Roi being God of vision. And so there's certainly blessing to be known here. And I want us to consider that in this name that she gave God. El Roi, the New King James Version says, you are the God who sees. So the idea, I think, is at least in part, is that God sees. God sees me in my affliction. He saw and knew her circumstance, and He cared for her. And, and not just that, but He took action. He condescended to her in a loving provision and took care of her and said, you will be blessed. There will be good that comes from your position. In chapter 21, when they were cast out, God stayed true to this vision and this sight and this care. When they were finally cast out and they found themselves in a very dire situation, even to death, God provided for them and showed that care again. I do want us to note, though, as I think it is helpful, there is a second view of this, El Roi, and that is simply that God is visible. And so the literal rendering of El Roi is God of vision. And so a God who is seen allows himself to be seen. And you notice there the reason that she gave him that name. Have I also here seen him who sees me? And so the New American Standard Bible renders it. Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? One commentator has said that it is God as seen even more than as seeing that is the theme of the two verses. I think that can be reflected in the name of the well that was given. Be'er lahai ro'i, literally the well of the seeing alive, Colin Dulwich says, at which a man saw God and remained alive. And so there's a footnote, though, in the New King James Version that speaks of it as the well of the one who lives and sees me. But I don't think that these two things are irreconcilable. I think both of those things happened here where God saw her and the reason he is visible in the first place is because he sees those he's created and he certainly sees their unique situations and their unique struggles. And that's why he makes himself visible to us. I think that's important and I think that it's profound. And so the idea that she is seeing him is not foreign to the text. It's certainly there, but also the idea that he has seen her is very much pertinent to the text. You notice there in verse uh, 11 of the text, she, he said, the Lord has heard your affliction. And that's why Ishmael is given that name, God hears. But I think we're well familiar with the fact that God is spirit. And so when we say that God has heard something, we're not really literal about that. He's a spirit. He, he doesn't have ears. When we say that he's seen something, we're not making the mistake of thinking that God has physical eyes. And when we say that God is omnipresent, we're not making the mistake that he is literally physically here and there and there and there. 
but it has to do more with the omniscience and wisdom of God than anything. He is spirit and therefore cannot be contained. I want us to notice in Exodus 3 and verse 7 what is said. In the Exodus, the Lord said to Moses in Exodus 3 and verse 7, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. And notice here. As he's seen, I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. And then as he's seen and he has heard, I know their sorrows. There's the point. God knows Hagar's circumstance. He is well aware that although she is a servant, a maidservant, who has neglected and fled from her duties and responsibilities, that Abram and Sarai are at fault, and so is Hagar at fault to a degree, he still is well aware of the difficulty of this matter. And he is not one to look past that or to look over it. And so what does he do? He appears. And so he is a God of vision that is a God of seeing, a God that can be and is seen in creation, in this form here, through His Word. The fact that God has revealed Himself to us is significant in Himself, but doesn't that presuppose that He has seen us and cares to reveal Himself to us? I think it does. So that is significant. And I think the account expresses, among other things, the wonderful reality that an all-knowing God is therefore not ignorant of unique people and unique circumstances, but they are within His field of vision. But He does not look on them with indifference, but with care and concern, and therefore reveals Himself to them to help with their problems. That is a very comforting thought. But with it, I think we also need to realize the sobering nature of it. In Hebrews 4 and verse 13, for example, the Hebrew writer said that there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God is seen, but it's because he sees us and he wants us to see him. We need to take that seriously. We certainly need to find comfort in it. Let us consider three things that God sees as he looks down upon us. El Roi, the God who sees I want to suggest to you what we see here in Genesis 16 that is probably the primary point is that God sees our works. Yes, He has heard her affliction, but did you notice the first thing that happens? God asked a question, and it's similar to what He did in the garden. That kind of stands as a foundation for a lot of the things and ways God interacts that we see throughout Scripture. He came to Hagar, Sarah's maid, and said, Where have you come from and where are you going? Did God know? Did the angel of the Lord know? Absolutely. Just like he asked where they were in the garden and what they were doing, he knew already, and he's trying to draw something out of them. So she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress. You see that, that she fled, and the angel of the Lord found her and said, return. She is a maidservant. She has been called, whether she likes it or not, and put into this area of responsibility. And she said, or he said, that the Lord said to her, return yourself and Submit. Reminds me of what Peter mentioned in 1 Peter 2 and verse 18. Be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh because of conscience toward God. Yes, the Lord has heard your affliction, but the admonition came before the acknowledgement expressed. You need to return. Oh, I know you're struggling. That is no excuse for you fleeing from your responsibilities. I want to tell you, regardless of Sarah's treatment, regardless of Sarah's harshness and her sin, Hagar 
was responsible for her actions. We need to learn from that not to shift the blame, as Sarai did. It is your problem. You shouldn't have done this to me. My, my fault be upon your own. The Lord judge between you and I. The Lord sees our works, and we need to see it in that way as well. My works are my works, and I am the one that's responsible for them. And it is me and my works that God is looking at. Oh, He's looking at yours too. But insofar as I'm concerned, God has me under the microscope. Because He does. And I need to live accordingly. We should learn from that. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the seven churches of Asia are being addressed. And we see seven times within the addressing of those churches that Jesus says, I know your works. That is important. I know your works. He says it in verse 2 of chapter 2 and verse 9 and 13 and 19 and also in chapter 3 and verses 1, 8 and 15. All seven churches. He said, I know your works. Well, there's something important, I think, to point out because as we usually do in the seven churches of Asia, there are two that don't have anything negative said about them. And so when God says, I know your works, he's saying, I know your good works and you need to continue in them. But I want to tell you, there's something also that is impressive, that out of those seven, there are only two that don't have any good works that are mentioned. When he says, I know your works to uh, Sardis and Laodicea, he does not say, I know the good works, but you have to fix this. He says, I know your works, that you are a church that is alive, but you are dead. And I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold, but you are lukewarm. And I'll spew you out of my mouth. That's important, too. We need to investigate our own selves to see if there's even anything good. And if there is something, that should be motivation, knowing God sees that, to correct what isn't good. And so it's not this balance game of, well, my good will outweigh my bad. What God would say is, I know your good works, but you have some other things you need to correct. Those are just as important as these. These you uh, should have done without leaving the others undone. But in that, I want us to notice that as he addresses these churches, he is doing it with this warning in chapter 2 and verse 23. He says, I will give to each one of you according to your works. It is significant that God sees our works because that's how He is going to judge us. He is going to give according to our works. And that's pretty plain and simple. That's a, that is a very black and white statement. And so we can understand by the way we're living in comparison to what the Gospel dictates, whether or not we do have the hope of eternal life. He knows our works and will be judging us according to our works. But along those lines, we need to take comfort then in the fact that as he sees our works, he rebukes us and disciplines us. And this is what he says to the church of Laodicea in chapter 3 and verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. So I know your works and they're not good, Laodicea. You need to change them. And why I tell you this is because I love you too much to look at your evil and turn away and ignore it. When God rebukes us and when He chastens us and when we are His tools, as we studied in Galatians 6, to rebuke and admonish each other, it is an act of love. And we need to understand it as such. There's something else to this as well, I think. 
He knows our good works. In chapter 2 and verses 8 through 11 and in chapter 3 and verses 7 through 13, He shows that there are people who are faithful in service to Him and encourages them in that faithfulness to continue. He's not ignorant about all the good they've done for Him. But then in the other three churches with Laodicea and Sardis aside, when he says, I know your works, he's speaking about good works in verse 2 of chapter 2. I know your works, Ephesus, your labor and patience, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. You have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary with the church in Pergamos in chapter 2 as well. And in verse 13, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr and was killed among you where Satan dwells. In chapter 3 as well there in verse uh, seven, you have the church in Philadelphia. I know your works that are good. But you notice there in those other churches, yes, he knows their works and he knows that there are good, but I have something against you. I think that's important. I think he's doing something similar to what we see later with the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter six. And I am getting my points uh, turned around, but we're going to go this way. In Hebrews chapter six, there is a text which speaks about God seeing and remembering in Hebrews chapter 6 that God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love in verse 10, which you have ministered to the saints and do minister. But here's the context of his remembrance of their doing good. In verse 7, he had warned about their falling toward and slouching toward apostasy, not growing that the earth which drinks and the rain that comes upon it often and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. That's the context. Oh, I've remembered and I've seen your good works. And God is not unjust to forget about them or overlook them, but here's the context. You've got other things that are are problematic. And what God does is He motivates us to continue down the path of faith. That's really where this restoration of Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 can come in. Where, yes, we see a person overtaken in a trespass, but what is often the case in the New Testament is first we appeal to what you are doing that is right. Your faithfulness, your goodness, your love for the Lord, your, your justness and your continuation and steadfastness. And based upon that, why don't you change this? Isn't that important? Oh, we need to address the negative. But think about what you're undoing if you do not correct the negative. Look at all the good you've done. And God hasn't overlooked that. We haven't overlooked that. God sees works of faith in the past. Certainly a reason for confidence of better things in the future. You need to look at it that way as well. Why should I listen to so-and-so in their rebuke and admonition? Why should I listen to this scripture that is read before me or this study that I've been engaged in? Why should I listen to this sermon which made very clear that there is something amiss in my life? Because if you don't, all that you've done before that is good is for naught. God hasn't forgotten that. He's not writing you off. He's encouraging you to consistency. He sees works of faith. 
And it is the people who are walking by faith and keeping His commandments. And when they find out there's something that needs to be corrected, they do not cause all of those good works before to fall into the arena of vanity, but they correct what they do that was wrong so that they can be right with God again. God is not ashamed to be called the God of those people. You notice in Hebrews 11 that God sees the works of faith when He says that it is impossible without faith to please Him. You've got to believe that God is and that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. But notice in verse 13, speaking of Abraham and company, how they had been called out and went into that land as strangers and pilgrims and confessed that they were such in verse 13. And they confessed they were strangers and pilgrims because they declare plainly they seek a homeland and it's not here. Because truly, if they had called to mind, verse 15, that country which they had come out of, they would have had opportunity to return. But they desire a better that is a heavenly country. And if, as Harry mentioned, their citizenship is presently in heaven, then not only are they not going to be worried about living in tents and never inheriting this physical land, but it is going to be reflected in their actions of obedience to God. Throughout the text, by faith is followed with, so and so did what God said. That's faith. That's how they embraced that they were strangers and pilgrims. Not just that they started wandering aimlessly. And it certainly wasn't aimlessly. They knew they were not going to receive these promises in the sense that they were made. In fact, he says they died without the promises. How were they not wandering aimlessly? Then? What were they doing? Wandering around. Did they have a goal in mind? Yes, but it wasn't physical. That's the point. Because they had embraced these promises and the fact that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth, they did what God said. They didn't question Him. They didn't waver in faith. But they accepted the promises as certain. So he says, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. You wonder why maybe Abraham was given the description as the friend of God a few times in Scripture. He's given the description as a friend of God, as James points out in James chapter 2, because by works his faith was made perfect. God sees that, and and that's where our relationship is sustained in him seeing that we are faithfully following him with the works he has called us to. We need to realize that God sees we have great responsibility, and we need to also realize that when we fulfill our responsibility... Even if our left hand does not know what our right hand is doing as it should be, God is the one who matters, and He sees exactly what you've done for Him. Secondly, I think it's important to learn from Genesis 16 and the account of Hagar that God certainly sees our circumstances. Hagar was a unique individual with unique circumstances. In Genesis 16 and verse 7, it spoke about how she was returned perhaps to Egypt, when the angel of the Lord found her and said, where do you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress. But you notice there, it says that she was found by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. Colin Delich says that Hagar, no doubt, intended to escape to Egypt by a road used from time immemorial that ran from Hebron past Beersheba by the way of Shur. We know that she is an Egyptian maidservant as we saw there in Genesis chapter 16. And it's likely that it was that she was those who followed Abram after the events of Genesis 12. When he, following his own wisdom, goes into Egypt 
and lies to Pharaoh. Pharaoh treats him well, though, in verse 16, and he gave him some sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants, and female donkeys and camels. But what I want us to take from that is Hagar's unique circumstance that others may have overlooked. She's probably struggling day to day thinking about it, but God sees. He understands the difficulty she's in. We talk about uprooting those problems. She was uprooted from Egypt. She was uprooted from her home. She was uprooted from what she understood and was comfortable with. And she was not just uprooted, but she was given against anything that she could decide herself to a wandering man, a wandering stranger. It's not that Abram would take her and go back to the land of Chaldees and, and they would sit in one spot and have all the provisions that they needed and, and never have any difficulty. She was uprooted from what she knew, placed into a nomadic lifestyle. How difficult was that situation? And on top of that, the position which she was placed in, not unlike the position she was in in Egypt as a female servant, but certainly the addition of now being placed into this marriage that she didn't agree to. She never thought about it herself. For sure, the text says this was Sarai's uh, wisdom and her decision, and she's placed to be this man's wife, and now she has had that held against her when she only did what she was called to do. You understand the difficulty there? There's a multitude of problems here, and we understand that there's so much wrong being decided upon. But I want to tell you, God saw Hagar, and while he saw that she had fled from her responsibilities, he also understood that her circumstances were difficult and no doubt had compassion on her, which is why he appeared to her. This does not justify her actions of fleeing, but it certainly manifests God's goodness. I want to tell you that God is aware of each individual's circumstance that is unique we may tell each other, you don't know what I'm going through. And that's very true. God does. But we also may make this mistake thinking that our circumstances are worse off than other people's circumstances. But I want to tell you that though that may be true, no doubt there are other people's circumstances that are worse off than yours. God sees them all, but never, ever, ever does Scripture reveal that our circumstances are what leads into our decisions and what we should value in our relationship with God. Our relationship with Him is not dependent on circumstances. You take, for instance, the apostles. Andrew, Peter, James, and John were but lowly fishermen. We read of another apostle who's given the profession as a tax collector in Matthew. In Acts, the fourth chapter, and in verse 13, we read that these were uneducated and untrained men, but it did not affect the relationship with Jesus. In fact, the relationship with Jesus came in spite of their circumstances. He chose the ones that no one would have ever thought he would choose. He chose the ones who had difficult circumstances and circumstances that did not necessarily yield confidence to those who would follow the Messiah and do His good work. And so while God is available, or, or rather he, his, our circumstances are available to His eyes to see, He certainly never gives circumstances as an excuse. The Apostle Paul is the case in point. In First Timothy chapter 1, among the idea that he was one born out of time shows his past as an unfortunate circumstance. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. 
But this is a faithful saying, verse 15, and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And notice what he says in verse 16. This is key. For this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. If one in the circumstance of Paul could be saved and changed to work incredible things in the name of the Lord and for His cause, certainly no circumstance is greater than God's grace. That's something we need to understand from Hagar and from countless other characters in the Bible. The grace of God is greater than our circumstances. You know, in Matthew 22 and verse 14 and a host of other places, the Scripture tells us that many are called, but few are chosen. I think one of the reasons why many are called, but few are chosen, is that some allow their circumstances to eclipse God's grace instead of allowing God's grace to change their circumstances. And this is not belittling our unique circumstances and struggles, but it is magnifying the power of God. And anyone with a humble heart of faith is not going to harp on their circumstances and to make mountains out of molehills, which all circumstances are, by the way, if you look at it with the broad perspective that God has. There's always something worse. Something worse than your circumstance. Those who have faith realize the triumphant nature of God's grace. There's an example of this in John, the fifth chapter, where Jesus reaches the pool of Bethesda and heals an individual who has struggled with an infirmity for his entire life. In John chapter 5, I want us to notice in verse 5 his encounter. A certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years, and Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time. And he said to him, Do you want to be made well? And the sick man answered, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. I think that an important question we need to ask ourselves is do we want to be made well? Yes, our circumstances may be difficult. We may have been brought up in a different way than other people in this congregation. And we were at a disadvantage at one point in time. I don't think God overlooks that. I think that some people have a lot more working against them than other people. That's certainly the case. I was privileged to be raised by godly parents who taught me the truth from birth. Some people don't have that privilege. God understands that, but by faith we realize His grace and His provisions are greater than our circumstances. Some may be raised in an environment of ungodliness or just be put daily in an environment that is against them and working against them. And maybe it's something like physical health. How can I be as, as effective in Christ as these other people when I'm struggling in my health? God sees our circumstances, brethren. But our circumstances are so small and minuscule compared to God's grace. And that's the point here, I think. Do you want to be made well? I don't, I don't think that Jesus is doubting this man. I think he's probing. I think he's asking him in a question that would allow this man to see himself in a different light. And this man's, this, this man's response, we may think of it as an excuse, and maybe it was. I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. And that may read like, wait, Jesus, you don't understand my circumstances. 
But I think at the heart of this, Jesus is really just asking him, how much do you want to be made well? And he says, I'm trying every single time and it can't work. And Jesus does not say, well, you're not trying hard enough and leave. His grace eclipses his circumstance. You see that? And I think that's the lesson to learn with with Hagar. Yeah, your circumstances were bad, but God is sufficient. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 11 and verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, God has seen everyone's circumstances, different circumstances, unique circumstances, some better than others and some far worse than others. But in spite of all the circumstances that God no doubt sees and acknowledges, He calls everyone all the more. You notice who He calls in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 26? You see your calling, brethren, Paul writes, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. He's called the foolish things to put to shame the things that are wise. He has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in His presence. He says that it is written, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. That's the paradoxical nature of the gospel. It it goes against the grain. It goes against what we would initially think and perceive to be the best way. And it is always to magnify God's power that He who glories, let Him glory in the Lord. You are not greater than your circumstance, but God is. That's the lesson we learn, I think, in 2 Corinthians 12 with Paul's thorn in the flesh. So the fact that there are so many circumstances of varying difficulty, but there's one gospel, tells us all we need to know. Jesus is very clear about the parable or the the power of the gospel in the parable of the sower when he sows one seed. There's one certified seed. There are various soils, but there's a reason he sows one seed. That seed can grow as long as the soil receives it. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4 the Apostle Paul noted that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, singular. There's one gospel that saves, and it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. No one's questioning whether you've had a difficult upbringing. No one's questioning whether you've had a lot of things working against you. Here's the question. Do you want to be made well, and are you those who have faith in the overwhelming power of the gospel? God sees our circumstances I want to tell you also along those lines, very quickly, God sees our afflictions. Yes, she was afflicted, Hagar, that is, and God saw her affliction, which is why her son was named Ishmael. I want to tell you that God sees our afflictions as well, and He's seen them in a very vivid manner. This is why Jesus came in part to earth. In Hebrews, the second chapter, this is made very clear. In Hebrews 2 and in verse 10, that it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to make their captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. He would not be complete. He would not be sufficient for what we needed without him entering flesh and suffering in the body. That word captain is important. It's the Greek word archegos, and it's a compound word which has the idea of a beginning and leading, to begin and to lead. You know, there's a reason why Jesus is called the firstborn. 
of those who have been raised. Because he had to do something first in order for us to follow. His leadership necessitated him participating in this capacity. And when we say he's the firstborn of the resurrection, and by that we look to the glorious victory that we have a confidence in, we need to remember what that necessarily implies. That he had to die. There is no resurrection without death. If he's the first to be raised to incorruption, he has to first partake of this suffering. And that's how captains truly lead. They go to the fight. They lead into the fight. This is what our captain did. In verse 14 it says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of the death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. It says in verse 17, Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he has himself suffered being tempted. He is able to aid those who are tempted. Yes, God sees your struggles in the flesh. He wants you to push through chapter 12, looking to him who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. That suffering is there. It's real. He sees your affliction, but he also sees the joy that awaits you and wants you to push through. Jesus gained victory over death so that we can. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3, John tells us that we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Yes, God sees our afflictions and he's seen them in the closest manner possible. And that includes the emotional afflictions that we experience from time to time. Within this realm of death and decay is emotional struggles that we have. You notice in John 11, at the death of Lazarus, in John 11 and verse 33, Jesus saw the sister of Lazarus weeping and he groaned in the spirit. You ever feel that? You're going through so much sorrow and so much emotional stress. You could describe it as groaning in the spirit. And then in verse 35, Jesus wept. He sees our struggles. He sees our afflictions. The key is what he said in John 11 and in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, he shall live. Yes, he sees what we're going through. He sees our struggles and he's been through it himself. And he knows the end of the story. We should trust in Him with that regard. And lastly, and most importantly, I want to tell you that God sees your affliction of a spiritual nature. He sees your sin. And just like He saw the affliction of Hagar and He did not turn away, but revealed Himself to her, so He does to us. He meets us where we are because He knows that we cannot ascend to Him. That's the point of Romans 10. Who's going to say ascend into heaven to bring Christ down or descend into the abyss to bring Him up? The Word is very near you in your heart that He died for our sins. He condescends to us because He knows our need. In Romans 5 and verse 6, When we are still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want to tell you that God's appearing to you afflicted in sin this morning in these words. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. While you're still in sin, you have that provision of Christ's sacrifice. And the only thing keeping you from taking advantage of that and having it applied to your soul and taking that affliction of sin away is obeying these words. That's His appearance to you this morning. That's why we offer an invitation every time we come together. Because God is still trying to appear to you. He's still trying to call you.
to the gospel pattern, to salvation, to freedom from that affliction of sin. Don't squander this opportunity. Don't squander being able to find God while He may be found. If there's any other spiritual need that we can assist you with this morning, we invite you to come forward while we stand and sing the song.